Today's reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 17. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, Agagite, son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned that all had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, 
He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have today to to meet together and to read your word and to pray to you and to unite our hearts in praise of you. And we ask now that over the next few minutes, the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections of all of our hearts would please be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, on the 27th of June, two weeks ago today, a bomb exploded inside a church in Beni in the northeast region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Only two people were injured in the explosion, thankfully, but that was only because the bomb went off shortly before the service, which was due to be attended by many children and their parents. Two days later, on the 29th of June, three Baptist pastors were imprisoned in Myanmar. What were the charges against them? Well, they were charged with causing fear, 
with spreading false news and agitating for criminal offences against government employees. What did all of that look like in practice? Well, they were running an interdenominational prayer service. The trial's slated to take place tomorrow. And on Monday of this past week, a number of students were kidnapped when gunmen stormed Bethel Baptist High School, a Christian boarding school in Kaduna State in Nigeria. It's thought that around 100, or at least as many as 100, might still be in captivity. Three recent examples, and there are thousands more, of Christians whose safety and whose very lives are under threat simply by virtue of being Christians. And what I want to begin by asking you this afternoon is how do you feel when you hear those kinds of stories? How do they make you feel? Perhaps you feel distressed. That's how I feel, if I'm honest, when I think on those kinds of stories, particularly the thought of, 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 of children being under threat in the Congo or being kidnapped in Nigeria. Perhaps you feel anxiety, particularly for Christians whose safety is still threatened, whose future isn't certain. And yet one common reaction, I think, is surprise. After all, how threatening are a group of Christian students in a school in Nigeria? How dangerous can a prayer meeting in Myanmar really be? Why on earth would anyone target a church service where men, women, and children were going to gather together in worship of their God? Doesn't it surprise you that that kind of hatred and violence would be directed towards those kinds of people? Well, what we're going to see this afternoon is that there is a sense in which we should not be surprised we should not be surprised that God's people will be hated. In fact, what the book of Esther will show us is that hatred is absolutely to be expected for God's people. Now, this is our second week in the book of Esther, and Esther, we saw last week, plunges us into the throngs of the mighty empire of Persia in the 5th century BC, and it follows the fate of God's people as they live in the heart of that empire. We saw last week that that empire is both impressive and it is oppressive. It's impressive in the sense that it is vast and it is powerful and it is lavish and it is oppressive in the sense that people are generally disposable, treated as possessions of the empire. And there were hints last week in chapter 2 that God's people were particularly vulnerable to that kind of oppression. We read that Esther, who is an orphaned Jew living in Persia, well, she was told to keep quiet about being one of God's people. We weren't told quite why, but there were hints that there might be sinister reasons behind it. There was something dangerous about being known to be one of God's people. And this week, those hints, those suggestions, well, they turn into something more substantial, into a serious threat to God's people. We're going to think about that under our first heading this evening. There is a service sheet with some headings on the back of that, very simple headings that might help you as we go along this evening. The first of those, God's people will be hated, so don't be surprised. Now, you might remember how we ended last week at the end of chapter two, if you were here. It ended with a, a brief account of a Guy Fawkes-style plot. 
Mordecai, if you'll remember, who's one of God's people, overheard a plot to kill the king. And he passed that intel up the chain, so the plot was foiled. It was stopped in its tracks. At which point we might expect Mordecai to receive some kind of recognition, some kind of honor or for his act of service to king and to empire, maybe even a promotion. And yet quite abruptly, instead of Mordecai being honored and promoted, chapter 3, verse 1, someone else enters the scene. His name is Haman. And for reasons not made clear to us, the king, Ahasuerus, promotes him. He's made up to essentially second in command in the empire, prime minister, if you will. And not only that, Ahasuerus makes a rule that everyone has to bow down before Haman. But, verse 2, Mordecai won't bow. Now, we don't know quite why. There isn't necessarily any sense that there'd be an act of compromise for a faithful Jew to, 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 to bow before Haman as though it would be any kind of signal of worship or anything like that. We don't really know why he didn't bow. But what we do know is that it functions as the spark that lights a powder keg. Haman absolutely loses it. Verse 6, just read that with me. Verse 6. Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they'd made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that I'm invited to go and meet the queen at Buckingham Palace. And I realize you need to stretch the bounds of reality a little there, but just bear with me for a moment. Imagine that as I meet the queen... I decide not to bow. Okay, I'm meeting her alongside a group of everyone else, another group of people, and everyone else is bowing. But I decide, well, it's not quite for me. Now, that might be deemed a bit rude on my part. Maybe I could expect some disapproving looks, maybe even some wrapped knuckles for being an insubordinate chap. But imagine the queen reacts by deciding to harm me. And I mean to really harm me. And not just me, imagine she decides to take out her fury on all of the good people of Ayrshire, where I'm from. Now that's a silly parallel in one sense, but it does convey a serious point. We aren't talking pantomime baddie when it comes to Haman. We're talking Heinrich Himmler. He's after a holocaust. It's grim stuff. As we read on, verse 7, Haman casts lots in order to decide when to enact this grim plan. The lots tell him to do it a year from now. And so he takes the plan to, to his superior, to King Ahasuerus, to get state sanction for his holocaust. And just notice the spin and the manipulation going on as he makes these representations. Verse 8, the Jews' laws are different from those of every other people, he says, well, that's kind of true, I suppose. God's people do keep some of their own laws. He goes on, verse 8, they do not keep the king's laws. Well, that's kind of stretching things a little bit. There is that one about bowing down before Haman that, that Mordecai didn't keep, but for the most part, they're law-abiding citizens. He carries on, verse 8, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. That's just an outright lie. 
We've hardly finished reading about Mordecai saving the king's life. If that isn't the king's prophet, then I don't know what is. To sweeten the deal, Haman offers the king a colossal sum of money, 10,000 talents of silver. And it convinces the king, verse 10, who gives Haman his signet ring. Why a signet ring? Well, that gives Haman's actions a royal seal of approval. A rough modern equivalent might be Vladimir Putin deciding to give someone the password to his email account, allowing him to send out emails in his name to act as if he is Mr. Putin himself. And so the order goes out, sent from the king's email address in his name to all the corners of the empire. Verse 13, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. It really is brutal, isn't it? Unbridled, state-sanctioned hatred towards God's people. But it is worth pausing for a moment because I think it's pretty clear that this Haman is a nasty piece of work, isn't it? I hope you've been able to see that so far. But I started out a few minutes ago by saying that this is something that all of God's people should expect. And you may be wondering, isn't that a bit of a stretch? Just because this one guy has a screw loose and a chip on his shoulder, to mix my metaphors, that doesn't mean that hatred is something that all of God's people should expect, is it? Well, not if it was on its own. But there is a bit more to Haman's hatred than one guy with a chip on his shoulder. Now, I wonder if you've ever jumped into a TV program halfway through a series and you've experienced that kind of confused feeling about who everyone is and, and, and how they all relate to each other, and it's all about discombobulating. Well, there is one thing in my experience that's worse than that, and it's watching a TV program when you have seen all of the previous episodes, but the people you're watching it with haven't. Friends of ours did that not too long ago with the most recent series of Line of Duty. They'd watched every episode of every series up until that point, and uh, they watched it with some other friends who hadn't seen a single episode before. And so I'm told the entire evening was spent like this. Why doesn't she like him? Why, why doesn't he like her? That's a bit of an overreaction, isn't it? Why are they getting so wound up about that? All these people are so unreasonable. Please do pray for that friendship. I think it was a bit of a testing time for everyone involved. But it was confusing. It was confusing for those who were new to the story. People seemed to, to be overreacting to be getting disproportionately angry towards each other over small, insignificant things. And yet, when you knew the background, when you knew the history behind the various tensions that had been building over previous series, well, it made a lot more sense. And in some ways, jumping into the conflict between Haman and the Jews is a little bit like jumping into a series halfway through. Just notice, chapter 3, verse 1, how Haman is introduced he is Haman, the Agagite. Now, that immediately makes him sound like a baddie, doesn't it? It's, even trying to say the word sounds a bit painful, Agagite. But it does actually tell us quite a lot about Haman and who he was. Because Agag was the king of a group of people, a particularly prickly group of people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites and God's people, well, they had previous. 
Let me just read you a couple of verses from Deuteronomy. This is a book written well before the book of Esther. Deuteronomy chapter 25. God says this to his people. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget. See, the Amalekites had attacked God's people when they were traveling out of Egypt after the Exodus and towards the Promised Land. They were the first group of people to attack God's people, as a matter of fact. Why did they attack them? Well, we're told, Deuteronomy 25, because the Amalekites did not fear God. That's something of the background behind the tension in Esther 3. Haman isn't just to be understood as a one-off, as a bad apple. He's a hater standing in a long line of haters, haters of God's people and ultimately haters of God himself. And I do think it's meant to indicate that Esther 3 isn't just a picture of things as they were for God's people in Persia. It's making the point that hostility against God's people, well, it's normal. It's always been like that. Why? Because ultimately people are hostile towards God. Now, if you still think I'm stretching that a bit, just remember Jesus told his followers to expect exactly that, didn't he? John's Gospel, chapter 15, he said this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And that's why we began this talk in the way that we did, with a church service in Congo, with pastors in Myanmar, with school children in Nigeria. Each situation, I think, should distress us, should make us pray for their safety, and yet in one sense, should not come as a surprise. God's people are still hated today. Now, I'm well aware that our experiences seem a million miles away from the experiences of Esther's day, and even from the experiences of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world today, and in many ways they are, of course, and yet, well, it would be naive to think that the underlying issue doesn't really apply here in Scotland. Think of the new Christian explaining to their mates that they're a Christian now, and they aren't going to behave in the way they used to before. Well, you think you're better than us now, do you? You Christians are all the same. You're judgmental hypocrites. Think on the student returning home to live with family over the summer, family who don't yet know Jesus. Perhaps who don't look overtly anti-Christianity, but day by day, week by week, chip away with one belittling comment after another about their faith in Jesus and secretly, or perhaps not so secretly, cannot wait until they grow out of it. It's just a phase you're going through, they say. It is more subtle here, at least for the time being. But it is the kind of thing that can surprise us, can confuse us, can leave us wondering what on earth we've done wrong. Well, Esther 3 shows us that it is to be expected. Do not be surprised when it comes. 
And it is worth asking if you're a Christian, if you have experienced hostility before for being a Christian. Now, not all pushback is necessarily an indicator that we're doing things right. We can be hated for being obnoxious or entitled or just a bit annoying. But if you haven't felt at least some friction simply by virtue of being a Christian, well, it might be worth asking yourself why that is. Might there be a reason for it? Do people actually know that you're a Christian? Do people in your office or your workplace actually know what it means when you say that you're a Christian, that you're different from them, you have different priorities, different allegiances? It can be easy, can't it, to think that we'll be the exception, whether through sheer charm or warmth, just not being very clear what we mean when we say that we go to church on a Sunday, that we can somehow avoid this kind of flack, and yet we are called as Christians to identify as his people. And as we do, as we publicly identify with the God of the Bible, we will be hated. So don't be surprised. Now, perhaps you're here this evening and, and, and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And, and this all sounds like the worst sales pitch in history. Well, it's true. If it was a sales pitch, you might expect us to try and downplay this side of the Christian faith. And yet it's worth saying that Jesus never did. He was always very clear about the cost of following him, that it would involve taking up a cross. As you've already heard, it would involve people hating you as they hated him. So it is important that we're clear about that because Jesus was, and yet at the same time, he was also clear that it is absolutely worth it. And in fact, even though it might not look it, well, it's the safest place to be. We'll see something of that under our next heading. God's promise to ultimately deliver his people will be kept, so stick with him. Now, chapter three, you'll be relieved to hear, is probably the bleakest chapter in the whole book. But then chapter four begins, and it begins on an appropriate note, doesn't it? Verse one, Mordecai tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He cries aloud. He is in mourning for God's people. And he isn't the only one, verse three, the news spreads as the edict goes out. All of God's people join him in weeping and lamenting. And the news even reaches Esther, the Jewish girl who, remember, has been promoted to the role of the Queen of Persia. She hears two, verse four, and she's also upset. Although it transpires perhaps not for the same reasons as Mordecai. She sends her servant, a guy called Hathach, with a new set of clothes for Mordecai. Also, he can change out of that dreadful sackcloth ensemble and into something a bit more stylish. Mordecai refuses, and Esther can't quite understand why. And so there's this slightly awkward standoff, verses 4 and 5, as poor Hathach, who must be knackered after this, by the way, after all the shuttling back and forwards uh, between them. All until Mordecai spells things out. And as he, does, as he does so, lands the ball squarely in Esther's court. Verse 8. He sends a copy of the Jew's death warrant to her. And he commands her to go to the king to plead with him on behalf of her people. At which point, things seem to stand on a knife edge. What will Esther do? Will she identify with her threatened people, even when it means coming up against the might of the Persian Empire? And the answer is no. 
verse 11. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Now, if you show up in the throne room and the king doesn't want to see you, Mordecai, then frankly, you know as well as I do, you're for the chop. If you think I'm going in there, well, you've got another thing coming. Do you know how dangerous that is? Now, Esther is often held out as a model of courage in the Bible, isn't she? I mentioned last week that I checked out some children's story Bibles to find out what they said about Esther. And two of them entitled the story of Esther, The Brave Queen. And there's real truth in that. We'll see over the next two Sundays, vulnerable, alone, standing against the might of the Persian Empire. But I do wonder, if we were to give a title to chapter 4, we might suggest an alternative, or maybe at least a subtitle. Something like, The Reasonable Queen, or The Logical Queen. Now, I don't think it'd sell as many copies, but it does cut with the grain of chapter 4. Why did I say that? Well, notice the logic Mordecai uses as he lays things out for Esther. In verse 14, he doesn't make a Braveheart-style plea to stand with our people no matter what the cost. He's already tried that, verse 8, and it's failed. She said no. And so what he does instead, verse 13, I should say, is persuade her that sticking with God is the reasonable thing to do. Just read that verse with me. Verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. See the logic? Yes, you might be in danger if you identify with God's people. But you will definitely be in danger if you don't. So standing with God is actually the safest place for you to be, says Mordecai. Now, it isn't entirely clear what Mordecai envisages happening to Esther if she doesn't stand with God's people. He might be suggesting that the truth will come out eventually, that she'll be exposed as a Jew. He might be suggesting that she'll ultimately have to give an account before the eternal God. It might even, some commentators suggest, be a veiled threat from Mordecai to reveal who she is. We don't know for sure. And yet what is clear is that Mordecai is absolutely certain of God's deliverance of his people. And that means, as one commentator puts it, the safest place for Esther to be, paradoxically, is to be identified with God's seemingly threatened people. Can you see that? It is an odd paradox, isn't it? God's ultimate deliverance means that the safest place for Esther to be, well, it doesn't look very safe, and yet it really is. Now, what does all of that mean for us? Well, Mordecai makes his plea to Esther, confident that God will rescue his people. And if he had reason to be confident, how much more reason do we have? Because what Mordecai pleads with Esther to do, well, it foreshadows a rescue that we can look back on. It's already taken place for us. 
as another of God's servants stood at risk to his own life as a mediator to plead for the deliverance of his people. Not from hostile authorities, but from judgment and sin and death. Who didn't say, if I perish, I perish, but said, not my will, but your will be done, God my Father. And who did perish on a Roman cross. Our immediate impulse is to identify with Esther or with Mordecai in the story, isn't it? But in the first instance, well, we're more like the Jews spread out across the empire under sentence of death. We need a rescuer. And so if you are a Christian, then one big application, in fact, maybe the primary application of the whole story of Esther is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that deliverance has risen for you and for me. That you have a mediator in Jesus who has pled your case, delivered you from ultimate peril, from the judgment and death that our rejection of our God so deserves. It is good news, isn't it? Can you see how Esther does foreshadow the Lord Jesus? And yet, as well as thanksgiving for what God has done in Jesus, we can also have confidence. Confidence in what he will do. That one day there will be a vindication. That all who have opposed God's purposes in this world will be held to account for that. And there'll be no more hostility towards God or his people. We will live in perfect relationship with him. Now, what does that mean for us day by day? Well, it means that even when it doesn't look like it, the safest place to be is to be standing with God's threatened people. And so it is right now for those pastors in Myanmar as they await their trial tomorrow. And so it is for you as you sit at the dinner table and wonder whether it's really worth all the hassle you're getting for your, from your family for being a Christian. Or as you're yet again the butt of the joke in the WhatsApp group with your mates from work. Listen, it might not always look like it. It might not always feel like it. And yet the safest place for you to be is to be identified with God because he will keep his promise to deliver his people. We've seen evidence of it already in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And one day we will see it and experience it completely. So stick with him. That's our second point this evening. Now at this point, I want to ask you a question. If God is in control of everything, and God knows what's going to happen in the future, why should I bother doing anything? You ever asked yourself that question before? No, I have. I've been asked it plenty of times too. And it may well have arisen in your mind as we read Esther chapter 4. Because Mordecai is certain, isn't he, that God's going to rescue his people. He knows it will happen. And yet he still pleads with Esther to go into bat for them. Why? Well, just briefly, let's think about that under our final heading this evening. God's purposes are outworked through the faithful actions of his people. So act faithfully. Now, Esther 4, and in fact, the whole book of Esther, does hold this tension, the interplay between God's quiet sovereignty, his hidden hand at work, his control over all things, 
and at the same time, human responsibility, our call and responsibility to act. And unfortunately, there is a sense in which, although it raises the question, the book doesn't give us a neat philosophical answer to it, but it does give us very helpful practical counsel. It tells us what not to do. See, notice that the hinge, the tension at the end of chapter four, is not what God's going to do. That's in the bag already. He is going to save his people. The tension is how he might do it. God will deliver his people. It's a done deal. And yet chapter four, verse 14, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether you aren't just going to play a part in God's purposes, Esther? I don't know for sure how God might use your actions, but I do know that he might just use them. And so Esther resolves to act, and we'll see over the coming weeks, God uses her actions. Now, what does any of that mean for us? Well, we do need to be careful with this line of application, And I don't think, in in truth, I don't think it's the main thrust of Esther 3 and 4, but it is worth addressing it because it's there, stands out, it's in our faces, I think. And the reason we need to be careful is that none of us are called to be mediators for all of God's people, are we? We aren't to dare to be an Esther in that sense. And yet we do see some of the same pieces on the table when it comes to the outworking of God's plans and purposes in the world today. What do I mean? Well, he's still sovereign. He's still in control over world events. We saw that last week, didn't we? Even when we can't see him, our God is still in control. And yet at the same time, he also still uses the faithful actions of his people to bring about those purposes. Now, we don't know how he's going to do that in many ways. We're often blind as to the specifics of how he might use us, and yet he very often does use us as his people. And so it is worth asking, in a limited sense, whether there might be some way in which you might be where you are right now as a Christian in order to serve God's purposes in that place. Now, I say in a limited sense, we do need to be careful. I remember someone once telling me that they thought the Lord had led them to move in with their partner before they were married as part of a witness to them, to which I was forced to say, no, he hasn't. I haven't got a special direct line to God that no one else does, but I do know that the end does not justify disobedient means. We need to be careful when we apply this kind of principle. But there are situations we find ourselves in as Christians that may well be God-given opportunities to serve his purposes. Just take a moment to think about the various places you're going to spend time this week. The people you'll see. The particular role you have in the particular office you work in. Are you in just the right place to speak to your colleague about Jesus? The house where you live, next to the neighbors you live next to, and maybe have done for many years. Are you in just the right place to speak to them about Jesus? Will that conversation lead them to faith? I have no idea. God knows. And he might just use you. Listen, relief and deliverance will rise. They have risen. Praise God that we have a mediator, one who has delivered and who ultimately will deliver us. And so the safest place for you and I to be is standing with him despite 
how unsafe that might look. And as we do so, as we stand with the God of the universe, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, to the office, to the flat, to the street, to the job, for such a time as this. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for your kind and gracious provision of a mediator, of a rescuer, of Jesus. We thank you that he pled for the rescue of his people at the cost, not just the risk, but the cost of his own life. And that through that death, for those of us who trust in him, we are free. And we praise you too that that deliverance gives us confidence as Christians as we do face hostility in the world today. Knowing that to stand with you, even when it looks dangerous, well, it's the safest place to be. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us, please, to do so. To take those opportunities that you give us to serve your purposes, even this week. And for those of us who don't yet know you, we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to take hold of the wonderful rescue you offer, to trust in the cross of Jesus for forgiveness, and so be welcomed to be delivered into your family. We ask all of these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.